The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux continued. This audiobook is available for the donators to Free Domain Radio at www.freedomainradio.com. If you have not donated money to Free Domain Radio, please do so or stop listening. Chapter 46, Late Night Ambition. Joanne, said Alda softly. It was late. He was still awake. Mm-mm. Do you think I am without passion? Without, she turned sleepily. You have many fine qualities, Alder. I think that I am without passion. You can't get, she yawned, as far as you have without caring. No, I care, I care. He frowned. Bess said something very strange today. Her lazy movement stopped. Is everything all right? Yes. Cat Larry has died. There was a pause. Joanne sat up. The female abacus of second-hand ambition clicked rapidly. Where are you in line? she asked. Alta shrugged. Not at the front, not at the back. Her face loomed over him, black in the dark. So what did he say? That... <laughs> that that I, I had to... He laughed, biting at a cuticle. All right, I'll, I'll just... He, he said that I had to find my heart to get Cat Larry's job. That comes with tenure, right? Of course, there's no way that short-circuiting nightmare could have kept his job otherwise. Joanne frowned, thinking hard. What does that mean you have to find your heart? I was hoping you could tell me, Alder sighed. Apparently, if I already had my heart, I wouldn't have to ask anyone, and I would be able to have purely psychic conversations with Bez. That is odd, said Joanne, and doesn't seem legal. I think it's okay to have a bias against the heartless. Heartless, echoed Joanne, chewing her lip. Okay, think for a moment. Why does he think that of you? Don't know. My writing isn't exactly poetic, but it's pomo. The important words are between the words. Unless... What? Alter told her the story of the pregnant student. Hmm, said Joanne. Well, you didn't know he, what he was asking, so... Let's think. What would it look like to Bez to have a heart? Alder shrugged. To have uh, great ideas, I guess, and thoroughly understand my students? Okay, okay. She leaned forward, clacking her nails against her front teeth. Do you have any great ideas? She paused. Ooh, sorry, that's more sympathetic than it sounds. Great ideas? Alder exhaled slowly. God knows. Something cross-disciplinary? He scowled. What on earth do you mean by that? I don't know. I'm just trying to help. It's a little refreshing to have some idea of what goes on over there. I keep saying, come to my lectures. She turned on him fiercely. He jumped inwardly but lay still. Alder, you have to get that job. What? I can't work not with Stephen where he is. And why? Why would you work? Oh, God. She exhaled, flopping on her back. I'm channeling my mother. Bob, is everything all right at work? <laughs> she knew more about rising interest rates than the Fed. Just look, we took this 50s route to a family where you work and I don't. We have no breathing room. We can cover one month with the line of credit, maybe another with credit cards, but that's it. I'm not going to lose my job. We have nothing for Stevens University. My parents are getting older and your mother... Just if we have to wait for another one of those academic buzzards to drop off the perch... So you're saying just come up with a great idea, learn the inner ventricles of my students, and claim the prize that's rightfully mine? Alder, she said softly, placing her hand on his cheek. Alder, I'm pregnant. There was a pause, 
then an exclamation, and then many, many more words. But they all washed over Alder. After Joanne fell asleep, all he could see was the image of Gordon bursting out of Joanne's widening belly, and when he got up in the morning, black-eyed and dizzy, he found that a decision had come to him. Chapter 47. The LWL Make a Decision The LWL, Lady to Lunch, met the following Friday, and all had various reports from the home fronts. Their desire to turn their pyramid money into liberating cash seemed to be meeting with unexpected obstacles. Angela presented last. All the previous possibilities had been rejected because one woman's husband was a compulsive liar, or just a husband, another woman laughed. Another's business was already shedding investors and employees like spray off a sneeze. Naturally, she did not use this metaphor. Although fine with fraud, the LWL were staunchly opposed to anything gross. Another's business was riding the high end of a pump-and-dump IPO and was expected to implode any day. The lifeboats were already lowering. Another's was in the initial spend-and-see phase of a startup and had yet to make a sale or even a product. Another's had no business they could figure out. It was some kind of incubator, which also led to a few jokes about husbands able to run businesses of that kind when they were unable to stomach the birthing room in a hospital. Another's well, was so obviously an investor scam that they spent no more than a minute tearing it apart. They knew the keywords a consulting company in executive training translated to, eh, we'll milk some, milk some contacts and make good salaries, then get a real job when the economy improves. Angela's presentation aroused some real interest. There was a product, a modest but possibly brilliant technical person, a vision, and some actual sales. The LWL also knew enough about software to know the power of a non-customized product. In the absence of the database builder, they probably would have been unlikely to invest. So, ladies, finished Angela, they're off, presenting to CityCore as we speak. Dave has great hopes for the sale. They have a great product, but are almost out of money, which I know because Dave has stopped dry cleaning. What about the money coming in from existing projects? Asked one woman. That will trickle down. The projects are almost done, though. There's not enough money in software support to keep them going. Why don't we just let them go back to their original investors? Asked another woman. Then we can invest when they've gotten past the dangerous part. Angela shook her head. Dave's been complaining about a lack of capital these days. Everyone's tightening their belts. I think the well is dry. This business is in the perfect place for investment. Look, there are nine of us here, and I've got the only opportunity. Do we really want to wait until the planets align themselves again? There was more debate, but it was largely show. Angela was right. They had nothing else to look at except boring investments at 7%, which would not give them the security they needed. Dave's company. It was agreed. When Angela got home that afternoon, Dave was sitting at the kitchen table drinking a beer. How did the presentation go? She asked brightly. She could see he was fuming and obviously wanted an open fight before the kids got home. Like we just opened our mouths and yacked all over that boardroom table, he said heavily. I couldn't take those morons anymore, so I rented my own car and drove back alone. With any luck, they'll be detained at the border and strip-searched. A little rubber-glove love for the boy wonders. She sat down. What happened? Christ! I've got to pedal to the metal. I turn the steering wheel over to them and they just fuck me with it. Dave, Angela knew, always mixed his metaphors when he was enraged. 
usually ending them with brutal epithets. It was like he was beating his down-home, folksy personality to death with a sack of porn tapes. Did the program crash? No, the goddamn program is fine. We just crashed. So you won't get the sale? Fuck! Listen to me, why don't you? I'll be happy if they don't sue us for wasting their goddamn time. Hey, it's not my fault. No, of course not, snarled Dave. You didn't fuck up the presentation. You're just not listening. I say we fucked it up. You asked me if we're going to get the sale. You've been spending too much time standing on your head in yoga. I think I'll just take a walk, said Angela. Dave stood up suddenly. So, we're going to need two things, professional salespeople and more investment. And I thought, hey, I'm a goddamn trooper. I'll just come home and make some cold calls. So I get, uh, I go to get my address book, and what the fuck do you think happened to my home office? It was cleaned. It was cleaned, he repeated. By some outside agency, by aliens from Albuquerque. I cleaned it then, if you prefer that. Why? Why did you clean it? I paid for this whole fucking house with that one little office. God forbid I should get something with a skylight when Queen Wifey needs sunshine for her exercise room. And all I ask is that it be left alone. But no, that can't be right. Why should little Davy have any privacy in his own home? Little Davy, Angela knew, was really a pleasant companion. She had no idea from what depths of childhood misery the little monster came, but he brought only rage to the playground. Look, you might not like the lack of a punching bag, she said, but I'm in no mood to be shit on by your bad day, so just give me a little space and a small fucking break. Oh, I'm sorry. Of course. Angela doesn't want to be upset. Angela never does anything wrong. Angela doesn't provoke. Angela doesn't intrude. Angela is an excellent listener. Everything is Dave's fault. I need a little sympathy. Not some dumb fucking broad to waltz in here from another hundred dollar lunch asking me stupid ass questions. Is it so hard, my love, to squeeze a few drops of human compassion from that over-tanned raisin you call a heart? Do you want me to call 9-11 again? shouted Angela. Do you, huh? Then shut up and back off. Dave circled towards her from around the table. Oh, sure, that's a great idea. Put me in jail for having feelings, and then try paying the bills with your most accomplished downward dog. I am not your fucking dray horse, Queen Deb. Sometimes you need to tend the livestock just a little. Angela felt fear in her heart then, fear and an almost unbearable rage. You are the boss of everything, Dave. I know that. So when something bad happens, why is it always everyone else's fault? What the f- fuck does that mean? His wild eyes searched the room. I need a translator. I've tried and I've tried, but I just can't speak. Crazy bitch. What it means, she said, backing away to the door, is that if you take another step towards me, I quit. He stopped and blinked. You quit? Her hands shook. She curled them into fists. Yes, I quit. I wouldn't take this shit from a two-year-old. You want to bully me? I'll walk out of here with half of everything, including one of your pitifully underfunctioning balls. Angela turned and stormed out of the house. She got into the blazer and screeched out of the driveway. She drove blindly far away from herself. Then she shook her head violently and phoned Dave's downtown office. Terry Coleman, a quavering voice, answered. She took a deep breath. Terry, it's Angela Bugle. Oh, yeah? Hi. I'm sorry to hear the presentation went badly. Oh, you and me both. 
I'd like to drop by the office if that's okay. There was a pause. Is Dave with you? He asked. No. She said, I I want to ask you some questions. Another pause. Sure, if you like. When Angela arrived at the office, she sat Terry down in the boardroom. So this is your first time in business, she said, right? Yeah. And, well, okay, forget today, but but tell me, how is it going? Without today? He shrugged. Good, I think. I believe that you are very smart and very honest. Um, thanks. So I want you to tell me something. She took a deep breath. This program, the database builder, do you think it's going to be a hit? A hit? Terry rubbed his forehead. Actually, yeah, I do. I think that if I could get myself out from under all this customization and really finish it, it it could be really big. Why do you think that? Well, uh, my dad used to say, if you want to invest, invest in a product you like and use. I like this thing and use it all the time. Would other programmers use it too? I think so. He smiled wanly. Um, good, but not unique. Show me. He stared at her. Sorry? Show me the product, everything it does. Really? Pretend I'm a client. Terry frowned. Wow. Um, why? Dave needs some recharging. He takes all of this very personally. I want to be enthusiastic, but I don't have a clue what you all do up here. Angela paused. I'm afraid he's at a low point, thinking of folding it all in. Terry's face went white. Oh, God. So I want to pump him up, but I need to know what this thing does. Ah, uh, sure, sure, sure. I need, I need to get the projector. Terry stood, running his fingers through his bristly black hair. And Terry? Yeah? This has to be between you and me, said Angela slowly. If Dave knew I was here, he'd never listen. He'd think I was going behind his back. Terry paused. Okay. Well, wait here. Terry set up the equipment, then spent over an hour going over the software. Angela asked question after question, and at the end of it stood up and kissed him on the cheek. After the standard, are we doing both cheeks, dance, she kissed the other. Thanks, you've been a great help. Sure, sure, whatever I can... He paused. Do you think things will be all right? I do, she said decisively. Now, get back to making this thing work, and I'll make sure you have everything you need. Angela parked the blazer by a payphone, got out, and made a call. Hi, Ralph, she said when a man answered. It's Angela Bugle, Dave's wife. I need to talk to you about setting up an account. Chapter 48. The Children Visit Terry, Part 1. Terry sat silently at his desk, his work forgotten in front of him. He gazed around the office. It was decorated in entrepreneur chic, which meant whatever had been left there by the previous occupants. The Ten Laws of Direct Marketing! advertised the market for truly niche humor. There was a coming soon poster for Windows 3.11, and one of those motivational posters with a group of hands reaching down over each other signifying teamwork. Terry and Pierre had a joke. That was what happened when you dropped a quarter in the office. They had returned from City Corps truly depressed. Terry knew better than to submit his expense receipt for the VGA cable. Pierre had left for a rare bout of mid-afternoon binge-drinking with some pretty shifty buddies, but 
Terry had dragged his sorry, skinny ass back to the office for a rather dejected stab at coding. Angela's news that Dave was thinking of closing the business hit Terry hard. People often want to keep what comes to them unexpectedly even more than what they chase after. Who imagined that I would be able to create real software, Terry thought, scrolling through code listlessly. Now I'm here, I think I would die if it were taken away. A grim, fearful rage flowed slowly through him like a river of hissing lava, and he shook his head, leaning forward. This motherfucker will work if I have to stay awake for a month. Deep in code land, he did not hear the soft knock on the front door until the second, maybe third time. Frowning, he got up and opened the door. Sarah, Alice, and Stephen stood in the hallway? Terry seriously wondered if he'd fallen asleep at his desk. Uh, no one's here except me, he said. Good, said Alice. May we come in? Like vampires, he thought oddly. They have to ask. Of of course, said Terry, stepping aside. The children entered in an even row with great solidity of footsteps and a deep, deep purpose. For some reason, the Weebles song came into Terry's head. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. He recalled the toddler game he and a cousin used to play where they put a weeble into its little seesaw, lifted their fists, and went for distance. Terry trailed them into the boardroom. The children lined up at the back of the room and looked out the windows. Nice view, said Stephen. Yeah, there's a joke, said Terry, coming up to them. He pointed down to the back end of a warehouse at a motley jungle of junk. We say that this view has everything, including the kitchen sink. I see it, said Alice, peering down at the porcelain. That's an okay joke, murmured Stephen. Let's get started, said Sarah. Stephen nodded. Sure. Terry, said Alice, turning to him, we're doing a project about jobs. Well, lives, actually, said Stephen. Yeah, but lives in jobs. Okay. So, Terry, continued Sarah, we want to ask you about this company, what people do. Okay, said Terry slowly. Should your dad be here? No, we're good, said Alice, coloring slightly. Sure, well, uh, what, whatever you need. For school? For our education, said Sarah. It seemed like an odd distinction, but Terry put it down to some Montessori thing. Sarah turned to the others. Okay, who has the questions? Me, said Alice, fishing in her little rainbow purse and handing a notebook over. Sarah opened it. Pen? Here, said Stephen, passing her one. You need some water? Alice asked. Terry. He shook his head slowly and sat down. Okay, said Sarah, opening the notebook and frowning at a list. So, what do you do with your day? Here, at work? Your weekday, said Stephen. Well, uh, said Terry, I sit at my computer and write code. You guys computer literate? Only about a jillion fold, said Alice. Terry nodded. Okay, so you know about computers? Well, that's sort of my whole day. I, I, I could go into it, but I, I don't know what... How, how do you decide what to program? Asked Sarah. The clients tell me what they want, and I, I write that for them. And this new product, the database builder, what? She squinted at her creased notes. What does that do? Oh, it's, uh, it's something I developed to make customizing our software easier. So that's what you work on during the day? No. During the day, I work on software for clients. So when do you find the time to work on the database builder? Oh, that's nights and weekends. 
Like homework, said Alice helpfully. And do you get paid extra to work on the database builder? asked Stephen. No, but, but, but I, I hope it will make the company richer. Yahuh, said Sarah, writing. So how many hours a week do you work? Oh, go- go- uh, gosh, I don't know, frowned Terry, rapidly correcting a potential cuss. Gotta be at least 80. Do you have a girlfriend? asked Sarah. Terry blinked. Alice grinned. No, Sarah, that question is for cute Pierre. Sarah blushed. No, I, I, <coughs> I misread that. She coughed. Okay, so uh, when you present software to clients, who does the talking? I do. Only you? Well, cute Pierre does some, smiled Terry. And what do you know about the finangles? Finangles? No. Finances, said Stephen. Nothing, said Terry. No, less than nothing. Empty out nothing, that's me. No, less than that. So do you make any business decisions? Asked Sarah. Like what? Like, yeah, how much to spend, where to spend, what on, that stuff? No, that's Dave's job. So, said Stephen, leaning forward. To sum up, wait, there's more questions, cried Sarah. He sank back in his chair. Yeah, okay, go ahead. How much do you get paid? Terry swallowed. Well, that's... You don't have to say it, but it'd help us, said Sarah. It could be our secret, added Alice. Terry paused. Okay, well, uh, it's 40000 a year. And did you get a bonus for the database builder? Terry paused. No. Sarah smiled. And how much does Pierre make? I, I can't say. But less, said Stephen. Terry paused again. No, I can't say that either. Stephen nodded judiciously to Sarah. Less. Okay, but I didn't say it, said Terry. And how much does Pierre work a week? Uh, about the same as me. Maybe a little less. He stays out late sometimes. How much does Dave work a week? Terry frowned. Well, I, I don't know, really. He commutes a lot, and he works at home sometimes. Stephen lifted a fingertip. How much time does he spend in this office each week? Well, uh, I, I, I don't know, said Terry uneasily. Pass that here, said Alice, holding her hand out for the notebook. We asked Sarah's dad this. She scanned it rapidly. He said... 20 to 25 hours a week here, 10 commuting, 15 to 20 at home. Or at the cottage, said Stephen. Yeah. Alice glanced up at Terry. Does that seem right? He nodded slowly. Yeah, I think so. The thing is, said Sarah, that I've never seen him work at home. Or at the cottage, right? asked Stephen. Right. Stephen turned to Terry. Do you get emails from him when he's working at home? I don't know said Terry, not wanting to be disloyal, but feeling a rising gorge of irritation. I will just have to check that, he thought. Alice scribbled something, then passed the notebook back to Sarah. All right, we're almost done, said Sarah. It's, it's, uh... Okay, how much of the company do you own? This company? No, 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 that's kind of personal. That's okay, Dave didn't want to tell us either, said Sarah. Does Pierre own any stock? asked Stephen. Again, that, that's, that's not, I, I can't tell you. What about options? asked Alice. Uh, yeah, we, we do have some of those. Stephen stood. How's this? Is it more in stock or options? Stocks, Terry frowned. No, wait. No, it's, it's more... Okay, about the same, said Stephen. Are they vests? asked Sarah. Vested, corrected Alice. Yes, said Terry. So it's like three years, a third each year? asked Sarah. Yep. How many investors are there? asked Alice. There are four investors, said Terry. 
they're on the uh, on on the board? Asked Sarah. They are the board with Dave. You're not on the board. No. How much did they invest? Oh, eighty thousand, I think. We've needed more since then. I don't I don't know how much. Daddy always takes a half, said Sarah softly. Stephen nodded. Fifty percent of the company is Dave's, so with eighty K of investment, that's gotta be at least twenty, twenty five percent of the investors. So we say that Pierre has five percent, then that's twenty percent to Terry. But they need more shares later for new people, said Sarah. And Terry says that the company has needed more money since the first eighty K added Stephen. So Dave's had to give up more ownership for that. Yeah, said Alice. So Terry, your share can't be more than 10-15%. Terry's eyes were still wide. Dave has 50%? Over five times what I have? A smaller piece of a larger pie, he murmured. That's what Dave always said. Okay, sure, said Alice decisively. But it seems that you're coming up with new products and coding all night to make other people rich. Terry stared at them. Montessori seems to have gone slightly communist. What project did, did you say this was for? He asked. Sarah ducked her head. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a personal project, I guess you could say. We're trying to find out what our parents do for a living, said Alice. I mean, what does your dad do? Uh, he's a vice principal, said Terry. With an A-L, said Sarah. So, yeah, you see, your dad has a job you can understand, said Stephen. But us, said Sarah, I mean, what do our dads do in their offices all day? Terry stared at them. In his head was a picture of the office of the British Prime Minister, the office of the boss, with the number 10 on the door. 10 Downing Street. 10. 10 percent. Hmm... About an hour later, long after the kids had left, he called Pierre's cell phone. Pierre, do you ever get emails from Dave when he says he's working at home? I can't find any. Dude, give it up, said Pierre. Come drown your sorrows. Where are you guys? Gabby's. I'm cabbing it now, said Terry. Stay sober till I get there. (laughs) Ha, too late, laughed Pierre. But remember your roots. Come catch up. Chapter 49. Justin discovers his music. Somewhere between sleep and waking, somewhere between sloth and dreams, in the shadow world where falling off a skateboard means jerking awake, somewhere here are the voices. And it was only a few weeks later that they found Justin. Justin found himself unable to sleep for more than an hour or two a night. If healthy sleep may be likened to a slow underwater stroll, Justin's sleep was more like a witch being violently dunked in cold water. He would fall asleep without warning in the middle of some endless mental riddle, and would be plunged instantly into the most violent and powerful dreams, and would then be jerked awake with a seaweed splutter and an almost infinite drop of disorientation. His mind was suddenly, quite terrifyingly, alive. Some of his dreams had a lucidity and a depth of detail that he had never before experienced in waking or dreaming life. Once he flew over a city and could see every pixel of every advertisement, each hair on each person's head, the make of every tire on every car. 
Another time he dreamt he left a cheap hotel room and was transfixed by the crippling depth of the wallpaper in the hallway. But he knew sleep, and he knew waking. He remained disoriented, which was a good sign. After one terrible dream where his legs were being torn off by a killer whale, Justin jumped out of bed. His hands were shaking. Something bulky and interstellar had entered his mind, his soul, something larger than himself which could not be subjugated. He felt as if his whole surface world, all his shallow beliefs, were being collapsed by shifting instincts hidden beneath his sight. He stood over his desk and switched on the light, the sad admission of the insomniac, and wrote the following, still standing. God is dead. The world has no reason. The future is dark. Fate has no season. Every carrot is a noose. Every stick a fear. Every word we will not speak. An answer we cannot hear. School is the sanding of all that you own. Friends a spent cage for a bird that has flown. Our parents hid their deaths in our pearly skin. We are ancestral mausoleums within. I live to impress but leave no impression. I yearn to be loved but bring only depression. I am an empire of endless war, a slanted shadow of mushroom light, a silver trophy of endless ash, a stone statue of cold cash. I am the best of what you cannot be, an envy, a test, a marketing plea. You stare up and I sit pretty, I look down and you all look shitty. That's all, that's... All, that's all, that's all I'll ever want. The height of a noose in a windy night, a stolen statue in a policeman's light, a locked child scratching at a trunk, a snake approaching the leg of a monk. And that's all, that's all, that's all, that's all I'll ever be. Everything you were not is everything I am. I am the mirror of your hellish despise. If you want peace, fold your wallets and open your eyes. Justin was dizzy. Have I ever written a fucking line before? He could not remember. He read it over. What the hell am I trying to say? It was close, but to what? It's your song, the thought came. Justin shuddered. He he reached forward, grabbing the paper. He crumpled it violently, but a sharp pain stabbed into his hand. He opened it and saw a bent staple impaling the words to his palm. A sudden wave of incoherent rage possessed him, a bile, a tension, a sudden biting savagery, and he leant forward and scratched the following into the paper, his pen half-tearing as it went. Fuck the pretty cage of my empty heart. Fuck the lift tickets, the stupid huge fucking car. Fuck my cheekbones, they are a moon's craters. Fuck all that I was given, it was never for me. I am an Oscar held before a hollow hall. Everything I have corrupts me. Everything I am corrupts others. I am a venom of indifference. I whisper that caring is cowardice. Rage is knowledge, bitterness, experience. I am a white devil of pettiness. From the top of my horns hang the white flags of surrender. I rage against the god I betray and feast on the maidens who could make me whole. 
Fuck this poem, it doesn't come close. I am not a metaphor. I am a ruin of violation. I am no simile, no comparison. I am what remains when history wins. Chapter 50. A Kleenex. Alda did not relish the interview. He was strangely terrified of Gordon. Somewhere in the boy, a terrorist had made a nest, staring with narrowed eyes from an empty ribcage. Gordon came in slowly, head-ducking, eyes wandering. Alda felt his anger grow. There was something about the boy which invited striking. To be so intellectually courageous and so physically afraid, his hands twitched. Gordon sat. Alda awaited, gathering height for the drop. It's, it, it's too long, I know, said Gordon in a sudden rush. I, 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 tr- I tried to cut it down, but, but I wanted to let you know what the premises were. It, it's not worth anything if the logic is out of order. He jerked back in his chair, struggling with something. I know, I, I seem a bit messianistic or, or rabid, maybe, but, but this idea is sort of coming through me, you know, like Deuteronomy or something like. So it's odd that something I claim to be so rational is sort of inspired. I, I know that doesn't make sense, but it makes it, well... Enjoyable, if that makes... Sorry, I'll be quiet. What did you think? Well, it's well written, said Alda slowly. No question of that. You're talented. I think the examples of object constancy are a bit obvious. Balls and blankets, if I remember correctly. Gordon nodded rapidly like a fast-forward plastic drinking bird. Yes, yes, I, I, I think that's true. That, that, that's a good... Okay. Alda held up his hand. Okay. Easy. I don't pretend to understand this vision of yours. Like the quote, if you understand, no explanation is necessary. If you don't, none is possible. He shrugged. It's well written uh, and flows nicely in parts. The problem is that I'm not really a literary critic, and I, I can't help but look at this as some kind of literary experiment. Gordon frowned, then shook his head slightly, his eyes widening a little. Literary, he echoed. Alder smiled. I mean, all philosophy is a form of storytelling, an argument for preference and the absence of agreement. Socrates has to look wise to be wise, something like that. So you're trying to put forward a new narrative where heaven is a gulag, I think? That's fine, sure. New narratives always stimulate debate, right? But, but here's the thing. I don't know whether you're going to convince anyone who doesn't already agree with you. You're either preaching to the converted or to an empty hall. My son has the same habit. Gordon stared at him, his cheeks coloring. One of his hands contracted. The other opened. Alda leaned forward slightly, his fingers curling together. I mean, you really want to grab the reins here. Marx mostly limited himself to economics. You cut through the whole layer cake. But academic narratives, well, narratives which work anyway, are incremental. There's no point just spouting ideas and antagonizing people. You have to massage a little, give a little, at least pretend there's room for debate. He gestured at his desk. Sorry, I left your piece uh, elsewhere. But I really don't see how compromise is going to be possible. Gordon swallowed. You think I I, I should uh, qualify what I'm saying? Well, that would be a little dishonest, no? Asked Alder, his eyes gleaming. I mean, you're not saying these are subjective tendencies, but objective absolutes. It would be fraudulent to hedge your terms. So, uh... So I I shouldn't? You can't, said Alda shortly. You misread me. I really do understand what you're trying to do here. 
Gordon's face worked. I, 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 could, I could say that uh, within the narratives of Western thought, of course you could, but you can't say there are absolute tendencies in any narrative. It's like trying to prove that King Lear has to end with the death of the king. They're all choices. They all work to differing degrees. No, I don't think that this will work. Gordon took a deep breath. But uh, there, 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 there must be something to do with this idea, something that can be done. Do, do you think it's a, a, bad, a bad idea, truthfully? Ye- yes, yes. Well, uh, I think it is a work of undergraduate enthusiasm with uh, a little youthful vanity and all the grandiosity we have when we imagine that we can build a system to explain the whole world. Aldous' words slowed, his eyelids closed a little. I think it is perfectly commonplace. The playing was done, the sword was down. Gordon's eyes brimmed with sudden tears. Would you like a Kleenex? asked Aldra gently. Gordon nodded and looked away, drops spilling from his eyes. Chapter 51. Justin offers his music. In the recording studio, Al and the others sat and stared. Justin lowered the piece of paper, his cheeks mottled. He had dark circles under his eyes, an eyelid twitch, and a little extra weight. What we've been doing is just milk and cookies, said Justin hoarsely jabbing his finger at the paper. But this has some juice. Al took a deep breath. I think it's beautiful, man. He got up and put his arms around Justin. It was like hugging a surfboard. That's a wild, different, stanky piece. Britishisms were good for pop. Wealthy, anguished white rap really demanded ebonics. You're like an M&M from Rosedale. It's okay with you guys, said Justin, turning weary eyes around the room. Ian smiled a little. Sure, I can fold my arms at the elbows, list 20 degrees starboard, and say, Wah! with the best of them. Gerald raised his hand. Can we have an umlaut over the A in rap band? Todd cocked his hand. Don't make me bitch slap you. Chris laughed. Yo, yo, down, homies. I think that the liberal, if sociologically unjustified, use of the African-American term yo does in fact qualify us as honorary home fellows, said Ian. Eh, it's such a short journey from malls and new blues to gold medallions and drive-by shootings, said Todd. Remember, said Ian, perfectly controlled rage, muscle shirts, oiled arms, and really tiny sunglasses. Life is a party that should make you angry, added Chris. We're in pursuit of big cars and big asses. We treat women very sensitively until they cross us. Rage against the black breast. Is is that the name of our band? Fuck Whitey and the matriarchy. Hey! shouted Al, his face purple. The babbling stopped. They were genuinely shocked. Get this straight, he snarled. We are not going ebony. Pause. But you said, yeah, it's great fucking urban poetry. I am oppressed by ski lifts. Give me a small fucking honky dick break. He whirled on Justin, whose dropping eyelids snapped open. Listen, two-pack of the SUV, you can screw around on your solo album, and if you want to wrap your way into the hearts of the distant fucking franchised, I'll hire you the Harlem fucking gospel choir, and you can all beat Kenny G to death with whatever the fuck he plays, but I poured way too much money into you assholes to have you zagging when the contract clearly specifies zigging. Another pause. Gerald looked around. Is zigging really in the contract? Really? Shut up, Jerry hissed Ian. Al lowered his large face to Gerald. Yes, please.
He turned to Justin. Now, given that I am not going to rewrite your Tiger Beat bio to include a preference for Tony Morrison and long white cars, what say we actually cut the fucking song we came in for, and I promise to drive you all home in time for the Chris Rock show. Justin nodded, his face inert. And, uh, one other thing, meatloaf, said Al, patting the boy's stomach. It's a fairly simple choice, but one that clearly needs explaining. Let me, let me tell you how it works. You can have plane loads of money and millions of screaming fans, your face on every preteen magazine, immortality in the realm of art, power to bring life to any cause you like. You can have all this, or you can have a fucking donut. I'd prefer it if you chose the former, just so we don't have to lash you down and bring in a liposuction machine the size of the Canadarm. Okay? Okay. Now, let's cut this fucker, said Al, retreating into the engineer's booth. Justin stooped for a moment, then slouched up to his microphone, his rap lyrics clutched in his pale, sweating hand. Chapter 52. Rudy Consoles Gordon Gordon sat with Rudy in his little painted shoebox of a room. The tears had subsided, leaving salt in their wake. Gordy, said Rudy softly, you, you have a right to an academic review. Have you talked to Baz, the department head? He's a decent man. Gordon shrugged. Yeah, but he doesn't do grad students. I, I could go for a review, but what would that do? Enthusiasm is the most fragile plant. I'd just end up working with someone who scowled every time I showed my face. Creating something new is hard enough in a supportive environment. He paused. And if I get it through and do a PhD, try to become a prof, become one, teach for 30 years, what then? The odds against it are staggering. I love objectivity, reason, capitalism. I'm a white male. Everyone opposes me for reasons that make no sense. I mean, what the hell do I do that pisses people off so much? Rudy hesitated. He rubbed his face violently, then took a deep breath. Look, do, do you really want to know? Gordon swallowed, then nodded slowly, his eyes serious. Yes. Well, you've been treating your ideas as a difference of opinion, as nothing personal, which is bullshit. Nothing is deeper than belief. Nothing. Uh-huh. So you go to Alder and say, subjective beliefs make you a Nazi. Jesus, man. He's nothing but subjective beliefs. You're telling him that not only is his whole life a lie, but also that he corrupts his students. He doesn't believe in evil. You say not only that evil exists, but that he defines it. You draw, you draw a serious line, man, and he's not on the sunny side of it. Huh. <sighs> Exhaled Gordon. His shoulders hunched, and he squinted as if trying to see an eagle against the sun. His mouth slowly opened. You know, I wonder... I thought I was going insane. I mean, not once, not once the whole interview did he ever advance one single argument against what I had written. It's like, it's like giving a speech and being criticized for your accent. I mean, I knew that he couldn't say if anything was true or false, but he didn't even look at the internal consistency of the thing. Rudy laughed, shaking his head. Jesus, Gordy. Your internal consistency is the amazing thing. You're like a force of fucking nature. What? 
Well, Christ, man, every single time you run up against this shit, you have exactly the same reaction. Actors would kill for that kind of emotional reproducibility. He rapped the wall. Arts professors don't believe in truth. You know that, I know that, but you still go running up to them with your proofs in your hand and cry foul every time they smack you down. The same bully takes your lunch money every single day of your natural life and you are equally surprised and enraged every single time. How do you how do you do that? I mean, does the sun shock you every morning? He mimicked Gordon, grinding his fists into his eye sockets. The light, the light, where comes this white sky god? Gordon stared at him for a moment. Uh, what are you trying to say? Rudy dropped his arms. Don't fuck around. What are you going to do? I'm leaving, said Gordon. Rudy's eyes widened and he touched his throat. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm tired. What you've seen is just the tip of the iceberg of my fight. But you're letting them win. Win? Win? There's not even a fight, cried Gordon, his voice catching thickly. No one's putting up their dukes. They just press a switch and a fucking trap door opens up in the ring. A fight? I'd love a fight. All everyone does. They, they just talk around everything I say. There's no conflict at all. I say, I say two plus two is four, and they say, oh, numbers don't exist, or, or math is a Western prejudice, or I am too white in my assertions, or there are many valid cultures without science, or eh, logic is just what we were raised with. If someone would actually stand up and say, I disagree that two plus two makes four, and here's why, I think I, 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 would, I, think I would just faint dead away and marry them, of course, man, woman, or other. He took a deep breath, then leaned forward and continued. So, let's say I believe you, and I, and I stop being shocked by this stuff. I don't know, perhaps retaining the ability to be shocked is the only way I got this far. I see 40 years ahead of me being willfully misunderstood, ignored, rejected for no real reason, mocked, and entering a profession where I believe that most everyone is corrupting my students. And I'd be trying to teach students who've been taught by them and believe in truth and reason and right even less. He leaned back and shook his head. No, I don't have the spine for that kind of fight. Sidney Poitier, oh please, sorry, but, but, but don't give me that breaking down barriers bullshit. Racism is so clearly wrong. I mean, that was easy to see. And he had countless allies as well. Pe people cast him in films. Audiences went to see him. Great actors and directors wanted to work with him. It's like I'm black, but no one believes in races, let alone racism, let alone that it is a factor or, or even that it is wrong. Here I am shouting on a mountainside. No allies, no echo, no incentive. The pay is bad. The hours are long. The students indifferent, the faculty hostile. Oh, on the top of the mountain, more of the same. Sorry. Sorry, it, it's just... Not enough to keep me going. So, what happens? Murmured Rudy, staring at the floor. Just turn Rome over to the barbarians? There is no Rome, cried Gordon. And you still don't get it, with all due respect. We don't fight for a city. There is no clash of arms. It's more like trying to convert a Muslim to atheism when you don't even speak Arabic or he English... There, there's no connection of language, let alone ideas. It's an empty desert. We rage only at sun and sand. 
And mirages, of course, said Rudy. Chapter 53. Dave's ship comes in. There was a grim detente in the Bugle household after the great fight. The rift, so often filled by the antics of performing children, was unfillable, since both children were on a kind of sabbatical. Sarah was eyeing her family. She stood in the silent arena where the good fights with the known. She was in a phase of passionate anthropology. The transition from the empathy of the child to the justice of the adult was occurring a little early for her. So Sarah could not help her parents. She was studying them and didn't want to disturb her subjects by direct intervention. She sat in her low-orbit enterprise, a well-thumbed copy of the Prime Directive in her hands. Justin, of course, was an unwilling tourist to the mad planet of sudden caring and had little time to raise his head from his shaking trench to take note of his fighting thunder gods. Sleep still eluded him. His stunning visions had settled into a grim, endless tension in his chest and he took every step as if balanced on a fraying rope. So Dave and Angela were largely left to the devices and solutions they had developed during the course of their long marriage. These were, in alphabetical order, one, avoidance. Okay, admittedly it wasn't the most varied toolbox, but they did what they could. Angela kept the white-hot rage of the unexpressed wife at high kindle. She was the kind of woman who accumulated grudges like an elk collects burrs. At this point in her marriage, she was more burr than elk. If they were to be really pressed, Dave and Angela would say that their strategy of avoidance also included the following secondary tactics. Uh, Wait for something external to unite or distract us. Uh, If nothing comes, create it. This can be very productive for couples with no ability to honestly resolve disputes. Avoid long enough, and something will come along to distract us from our distance. These distractions do not have to be bad, of course. What broke the wall of ice between Dave and Angela was a single phone call, which Dave took one night in his office, which had been allowed to return to its state of nature. Mr. Bugle, a bland man, ooh, something professional. He pumped depth and shine into his voice, speaking. I hear you are looking for investment. Why, yes, yes I am. May I ask who is calling? My name is Banu Goli, and I represent a group of investors who have been following the progress of your company and are most impressed and would like to have the opportunity to invest. Yes, yes, that's great, Dave frowned. But we haven't met, right? No, but we will. Right, right. So, Banu, do do, do you mind if I call you, Banu? That's fine. Banu, do you know... How much we're looking for? That's not really of interest to me. This is what I do. I say how much I have to invest, and you tell me if you can use that much. Oh, can you talk about that now? Sure, one million dollars. One, one... Dave took a breath, then a deeper one, hardly daring to hope. U.S. dollars? Canadian. Well, well... Well, I think that's just fine. That's, that's, that's not far off from what I was originally thinking of when we first packaged the offering, but, but, but I wasn't sure, given the current uh, climate, that we might be able to get to find that much. But certainly we, we have a need and, more importantly, a concrete use for that kind of capital. We have a software product the like of which you have scarcely seen. That's good, Mr. Bugle, but you don't have to sell me. We're already committed. Oh, 
When can we meet? They arranged a time and place, and, and Dave tried to hang the phone up three times before hitting the cradle properly. Ange! he shouted, his voice shiny with joy. Ange! She appeared in the doorway to his study, her hands bright with recreational paint. What? Ange, I think that... Ange, I'm, 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 I'm sorry about what I said. Holy shit, I am a cosmic asshole for railing at you when things went against the grain. I'm sorry, I really am. You are a princess. He stood there almost panting. I appreciate that, said Angela eventually. All my fault. All your patience is the sum root of my talents. How are you feeling? Well, got it. Of course, of course. I respect that. Why not? I was cosmic, but listen, Ange, listen. I just got a phone call, and it turns out that this water bomber of cash is just opening up over the business. It's, it's going to be a fucking deluge, Ange, and we're right at the core. That's great. Dave took a deep breath, then exhaled in a whoosh. I have been in a vice, Ange. It feels like forever. I, I had no idea how tense I was. I feel like I've been struggling for ten years, Ange. Ever since my first deal, nothing seems to have gone right. I was beginning to feel like an asshole, asking people for money. But I have faith in this thing. That's why I was so fucked up the other day. I was so disappointed I couldn't shit for a week. Now there's a mill coming down the pipe, Ange. Everything I ever wanted to do in business. He lifted up his hand and counted down his fingers. It's the right industry. It's the right product. The right time. The right team. Terry can't present worth shit, but I, if I get a real sales force together, I, I'll call Bill and Carl from the old days. This is going to be big, Ange. No more scraps and leftovers. We've broken through, my love, and now life begins for real. There was a pause. Dave's eyes were pleading. Angela knew she had only a few minutes of that pleading before the hostility came, the rage at her refusal to participate in his legitimate joy, her unholy dampening of all his healthy enthusiasms, her stinginess, withholding, and inability to take pleasure in anything, most of all his happiness. Angela knew the pattern. It was tattooed on her very bones. It was the same totalitarian forced cheer heartiness that her father had subjected her to when she had to join in his drinking songs. She thought of the future and nodded slowly, forcing a smile. Lord, Mr. B, that's fantastic. His tense face dissolved into formless, relieved joy, a bully's joy, at the absence of a teacher. That night, she blew him with a prostitute's passion, claiming her period. Afterwards, when he was snoring, she lay back and thought, Good Lord, my period was last week. He knows my body about as well as I know his soul. She got up and headed to the bathroom for a sleeping pill. Passing by Sarah's door, she thought she saw the flicker of a light against the floor. She turned and opened the door. Sarah lay on her front, her butt slightly in the air, shadowed under the windowed moon. Angela came in, touching the door handle, thinking, I remember holding on to this with all my might. The night Sarah slept alone in her room for the first time, when she pulled and pulled and screamed. All houses carry such Armageddons of passion. The walls should rightly carry nuclear shadows. On the wall of this hall should be the outline of a mother holding a door closed with two branches of the same biology crying endless tears on either side. Angela reached down and touched Sarah's cheek. How tight it is. How tight and smooth, how loose and slack my own is. And her hair, every blonde hue of the ditzy rainbow. The idea of her daughter as ditzy almost made her laugh. 
A notebook stuck half out from under Sarah's pillow. Angela reached for it to put it away, then stopped as Sarah spoke. Mom? She looked down, suddenly frightened, more than frightened. Yeah, softly. What do you love about Dad? Angela's face froze, sealed by a sudden sheen of hiding. She drew her hand back and looked down. Why, honey? I need to know. Angela took a deep breath. Well, what do you love about your dad? It can be funny. Yeah, that's true, said Angela, thinking, fucking, fucking charm. So what do you love about him? Uh, He's a good family man. He'd do anything for us. Sarah gazed at her. Angela almost shuddered. Ooh, this is going to be hard. Blink, you little beast. What about before Justin and I? And me, corrected Angela, rubbing her mouth. Well, uh, we always talked about having a family, so so he was for the family? He's for us. No, not just that, of course. We, we, we were married for a few years before Justin. Why did you love him then? Uh, he can be very romantic. That's easier before kids. But, but, but kids are romantic too, she smiled. How was he romantic? Oh, he'd he'd buy little presents, take me on trips. He bought you things. The thought was as clear as black neon on Sarah's dark forehead. Angela plunged on. He was very ambitious, and I admired that. I, I really liked his family. I respected his work ethic. He was very punctual. Oh, good one. He he was quite modern for our day. He He would have let me work. Sarah looked down for a moment. Something was building in her, and Angela had to fight from jumping up and running away. Something emerged, shifted forward, and then opened. Sarah's mouth and shuddered into the room, eclipsing the bed, the moon, the window, and almost the very bond of blood. It is really the oldest question of family. Mom? asked Sarah softly. I need to know. Angela tried twice to swallow, then gave up. No, what? Still unblinking, Sarah opened her mouth slowly and asked, Is Daddy a good man?